Hello, and welcome back to My Love Letter Time Machine, a podcast where we are discovering the Victorian love story told through the letters of two ordinary people from Sheffield, Yorkshire, Fred Shepherd and Janie Warburton, who were courting in the 1880s. I'm Ingrid Betchell Hughes, and I just happen to be their great great granddaughter, and this time we'll be finding out why Fred, at just 22 years old, boarded a train from Sheffield to Middlesbrough and left behind everything he'd ever known. There's a letter from Fred dated July 1881 on Brown, Bailey and Dixon Company paper that has been stamped in liquidation. This is the part of our story where the global economic storm beyond Fred's control picked him up and deposited him in a new town with a new job and the hope of future prosperity. But it also separated him from the woman that he loved. This separation is the reason why I have so many of Fred and Jane's letters, the bulk of which were written during 1881 and 1882, which we'll get to explore together in future podcasts. I do wonder if Fred ever looked back on 1881 as a particularly difficult year. It started with his employers going into liquidation, and the next thing that landed on his plate was a tragic accident at the Brown, Bailey and Dixon Works. In the previous podcast, where I gave an account of the financial disaster that was befalling the steel mill, the tone of the newspaper article was almost fawning in the heroism pitching the plucky entrepreneurship against the troubles of the global recession. It's easy to forget that all the innovation and prosperity of the Industrial Revolution was paid for with the hard labour and in many cases the lives of ordinary working people and often children. Health and safety standards were in their infancy, but it didn't mean they didn't exist. And Brown, Bailey and Dixon appear to have cut corners, which led to the death of 17-year-old Thomas Trelaw. article in the Sheffield Independent on the 12th of February 1881 reads as follows. The fatal accident at Messrs Brown, Bailey and Dixon Works. Mr Whiteman, coroner, held an inquest yesterday afternoon at the Old Plough Hotel, Milner Road, Attercliffe, regarding the body of Thomas John Trelaw, aged 17 years, engine tender, number 63, Church Street, Attercliffe. The deceased was in the employ of Messrs Brown, Bailey and Dixon and worked at their works at Attercliffe. Wednesday evening, he was found dead in the engine house by another engine tender named Samuel Dern, who had gone to relieve him. The suppositions that the deceased, when pulling the engine off centre, turned on the steam slightly to aid him doing so and then was caught and jammed between the bottom of the flywheel and the engine bed. The foreman over the engine tenters Herbert Ashby, said that neither the drum, the flywheel, nor the flywheel race were protected by any fencing as was required by the Factories Regulation Act. The government inspector of factories who was present said that had there been a guard around the flywheel, the deceased could not have possibly met with the accident. He considered that there had been a breach of the Factories Act. The coroner said the jury could not come to any other conclusion 
than that they had heard from the government inspector. The jury then returned the verdict that the deceased was accidentally killed and that it was a breach of the Factories Regulation Act. One of Fred's main duties at Brown, Bailey and Dixon was to make up and distribute the wages at the works. He would have known this lad, brought him his wage packet every week. And in situations like these, it would usually fall to the wage clerk to take the last wage packet and any death in service monies to the next of kin. I should imagine in this case to the boy's parents. It's highly likely that this task fell to our Fred, a sad and distressing thing for him to have to do. March brings the examination season, and Fred has to restrict his visits to Janie so that he can get in some revision. March the 14th, 1881. My darling, I heard this morning from our chemist that the Institute examination in chemistry is fixed for Monday evening next. In consequence of the recent overtime, I am behind and shall require all this week to work up, so that, unfortunately, I shall not be able to come up tomorrow night as promised. It will be mutual disappointment, but I really cannot spare the time. With regard to your inquiry as to the visit to Attercliffe Church, I shall be happy to accompany you next Sunday evening, if it is fine, and suggest that I meet you about four o'clock in the afternoon. We could tea at our house, which would make it a much shorter journey for you after tea. I remain, my darling Janie, yours ever, Fred. Most of the letters I have after this for the spring of this year are just very short ones about which train they will meet each other from. But in April, there is a rather formal and enigmatic letter from Janie, and it simply reads as follows. Hansworth, April the 7th, 1881. Miss Warburton's compliments should be glad of Mr Shepherd's company to tea on the 14th, Thursday, 7 o'clock. P.S. An early answer will oblige. That's it. That's all it says. This shortest of notes is so tantalising. Part of me wants it to be significant. Is this the proper meeting the family meal? However, we know Janie has a mischievous sense of humour. Is Janie sending the situation up by being overly formal with something which by now is a regular occurrence? And she's just written it like this to make Fred laugh. I can completely imagine her doing something like that. This is the frustration I have sometimes with the letters. It doesn't matter how much detective work you do, some mysteries are never going to be solved. Anyway, examinations are also much on Fred Johnson's mind, as well as a broken heart. In this, his next letter to our Fred. 19th of June, 1881. Dear Fred, You will receive my answer earlier than usual, for I write today seeing that the midsummer exams commence next Thursday. I shall not have time next Sunday. Hope to reach home safely a week next Friday afternoon. It will be a relief to be home again. Shall expect seeing you down on Saturday, if not otherwise engaged. I'm sorry to hear of your little rupture at Handsworth. Hope it has blown over favourably. You don't say much about it. You seem to be in a bit of a temper over it but you will no doubt say more when we see each other. I'm not surprised about your dear niece and WT, as he was very attentive at Christmas. I hear from him last week. 
he is dissatisfied with his place and has to put up with a lot of humbug and screw for not much money. I don't think he will stay longer than he can help. Have you ever seen Jessie in your walks? Who was she with, etc, etc? Think I have passed the stage of lovesickness. Like Chambers, am wiser but sadder man. Don't regret it in the least. I feel disgusted with myself for ever being so silly, to suppose so much trust where none was bestowed in return. I'm glad you had such a jolly day at Roche Abbey, though the rain would dampen your ardour a little, no doubt. We had a hailstorm here at dinner, but it cleared up afterwards, and several of us went to the fete at Abingdon, from which we had to run two miles to get in time for roll call. Twas a go, sweating like a... oh dear, awful. Not one of those clammy sweats, though, resulting from indulging in the weed. I only hope I do well at the midsummer exams. Have you heard the result of your exam in chemistry? Hope you got a first. But must conclude this scrawl, which I hope you will be able to read, if not save it until I see you. Kindly remember me to your mother, Arthur and Janie. Believe me to be your sincere friend, Fred Johnson. By a very odd coincidence, I only actually found Fred's certificates yesterday. I was looking for something else in a big pile of dusty paperwork that I have, as well as the letters. And there they were. The examination board was the snappily named Science and Art Department of the Committee of Her Majesty's Most Honourable Privy Council on Education. The certificates are stamped with the Mechanics Institution Sheffield, and Fred took a practical and a theory in inorganic chemistry. And yes, our Fred got a first in both. So I'm glad Fred's Annus Horribilis had a bit of good in it, and this continues with a trip to Morecambe. I don't have any of Fred's funny reports from his seaside trip for this year, but there are references in future letters that during the summer of 1881, Jane and Fred managed to have another seaside rendezvous. While there are no letters, I do have a photograph. It's a very severe picture of them both, with very serious expressions. I have later photographs of them, which are frankly more flattering, but this is among the earliest, and it has been taken in a very formal fashion, having to sit or stand with a fixed expression for the exposure. Some photographers at that time even had a little device on a tripod that was positioned at the back of your neck to hold your head really still. What seems most significant is that the pose here is very much a traditional couple pose that you see in Victorian pictures at this time. Their time in Morecambe is definitely one of the candidates for when they got engaged, even if they were yet to go public with it, and I wonder if this photo is a record of that. In the photograph, Fred is seated at an angle, looking towards the right of the frame. Jane is stood behind him, resting her hand on the back of Fred's chair, but she's looking straight at us. Her dark hair is scraped over her head very tightly. In later pictures, she cuts and curls her fringe, and it's a much more flattering look than this one. Jane has a round face with deep-set eyes and a tiny rosebud mouth. She's wearing a floor-length dress with lace cuffs and a very high lace collar. Fred is wearing a dark jacket over lighter-coloured trousers, and his hair looks to be the unruly, curly kind that he's tried unsuccessfully to tame with some sort of pomade. Red hair runs in my family and there's something about the way the light is reflecting here and on other pictures that makes me think Fred's hair may well be red. 
He has good cheekbones, the hint of a cleft chin and a dainty, slightly upturned nose. It's pure coincidence that I myself was born in Morecambe, so I'm a little enchanted with the idea of my great-great-grandparents being there 86 years before I showed up on the planet. Back in Sheffield, against the continued depressed mood at the steel mill, during the month of August, several of the clerical staff at Brown Bailey and Dixon decided to raise spirits by having a -a five-a-side cricket match for a leg of mutton, plans of which Fred describes in his next letter. August the 18th, 1881. My darling Janie, I'm sorry that I cannot come up tomorrow night as promised for a reason I will tell. There has been considerable arguing in cricket matters lately, which has resulted in a match between O'Donnell and a young fellow out of the general office named Alvy for a leg of mutton for ten, that is, five aside. When I promised to play, it was arranged for Saturday night, but as that afterwards did not suit the majority, it was altered to tomorrow night, so I had to give way. I did not know of this until this morning, or I should have told you. The sides are as follows. General office, Alvy, Hughes, Kelsey, Nixon, Dunwell. Costs and wages office, O'Donnell, Hagen, Fitter, F. Shepherd, H. Shepherd. Of course, our side will win. I don't think I should play, but it may be the last time we shall all be together under existing circumstances. For even if the works go on, I may be in a position not giving much scope for cricketing for suppers. Atmosphere at the works is very depressing. Mr. Barber has not returned yet. My spirits ditto, which proves that I want you to cheer me up a bit. I will endeavour to come up on Saturday night as soon as possible. I am not quite sure if I shall come up by the 7 to Attercliffe or by the 8 to Woodhouse Mill, so that I should advise you to wait until I come, hoping that your mother has entirely recovered and that Emma is a little better dispositioned. I remain, my darling, your loving H-H-D, Fred. Fred's sign-off here is tantalising. The word is obviously supposed to be husband. There's a letter from Janie around this time that is signed off as your loving W-E, obviously supposed to be wife. By this point, they are definitely engaged. But why all the tongue-in-cheek hinting? Is it still a secret? I think Fred's comment about not being in the position of being able to do cricketing for suppers looks to me that he believes his job will not survive. Brown and Bailey subsequently reformed without Dixon but in the process lost one of their key innovators in steel producing, Dr Arthur Cooper, who left to take up the position of manager at the newly formed North Eastern Steel Company in Middlesbrough. Bailey and Dixon's loss was North Eastern Steel's gain, and plans for the works were drawn up by Arthur Cooper. The works would be capable of producing 2,000 tonnes of steel per week. This is a staggering increase, considering that Cooper had already improved things at Brown, Bailey and Dixon to be one of the world's largest producers at 442 tonnes of steel a week in 1880. Arthur Cooper was evidently a talented man. As manager of this startup, 
Cooper, with a large, newly unemployed workforce to choose from, would have had his pick of people for his new works. And our Fred is the person that Cooper chose to invite to become the chief clerk of the new factory, to set up the financial and administrative side of the business. This choice surely reveals something of Fred's character to be considered for this role. Fred has proved himself to Cooper as a hard worker, trustworthy, and someone who gets things done. But I think Cooper must also have seen huge potential to want to take Fred with him to Middlesbrough. I'm so proud of Fred here, and I'm sure he was enormously flattered and felt somewhat validated too. Such a mark of respect, as well as an opportunity given to him by a highly influential man. However, I imagine that the offer would have felt bittersweet too. Here is a chance for Fred and Janie to have everything they had dreamed of, but it was going to come at a cost. I'm sure Fred would have included Jane in the decision-making over the new position. His later letters are full of him asking her advice. They have been courting, with minor hiccups, for nearly two years at this point and adore each other. The plan they make seems to be that Fred will do well in his job and take lodgings of a standard that mean he can save money for their future lives together. Jane embarks on sewing and collecting together items for their home, but they have to give up seeing each other until they have enough for married life. Fred and Jane will now be in a long-distance relationship and the only time they can now spend together are the weekends that fall on public holidays. That's a huge sacrifice. The plan for Fred to take the job in Middlesbrough was made during the autumn of 1881. And while facing all this upheaval, Fred and his family had to endure an unexpected tragedy. On the 4th of October, Fred's oldest brother Joseph died. There were 23 years between Fred and Joseph, and he'd already moved out of the family home by the time Fred was born. He was a tobacconist, and his wife and daughters were employed in the family business as cigarette rollers. While the family must have naturally been devastated by this loss, it was made even worse when Joseph's eldest son, Arthur, started throwing his weight around. I'll refer to him as Arthur William, so as not to confuse him with Fred's brother, Arthur. When Alfred... Fred and Joseph's father died in 1879. The family home, 94 Freedom Hill, was inherited by Joseph as the eldest son. Anne, Alfred's widow, could not inherit, as women's property rights did not exist at the time. It wouldn't be until 1882, when the Married Women's Property Act passed, enabling women to inherit property from their deceased husband. But Joseph was obviously a loving son, and let his mother and the rest of his siblings, including Fred, continue to live in the family home rent-free. After Joseph's death, it was his son, Arthur William, who next inherited 94 Freedom Hill. And Joseph had not been dead three weeks before Arthur William made it very clear that Anne, his grandmother, and everyone else either had to move out or start paying him rent. For Fred to be moving out of the family home at this time, well, it would have been an extra blow for Anne. Fred gave his mother nearly half his wages for his board, and for Anne to have to do without this income would have been yet another blow on top of the fear that she would have to leave her home or find the money to pay rent to her grandson. 
it must have made Fred's decision to leave extra painful. I wonder from the details in Fred's next letter if he offered to stay, to find different work locally. But I can imagine Anne and the rest of the family quashing any such offers and making sure that Fred was able to take up his amazing opportunity in Middlesbrough. 25th of October, 1881. Dear love, do not go to Carbrook tomorrow. Go on Thursday if you possibly can. And then we can go to the theatre that night. Miss Wallace plays Juliet in Romeo and Juliet, and I've wanted you to see it for some time. I think you had better get about four handkerchiefs, as it is very affecting. Much weeping and smashing of teeth, etc. Mother has this morning received a letter from our relations, stating that she must either leave the house or pay rent if she stops in it. We'll give you all the particulars tomorrow night. She is at present very much cut up about it, and it may cause an alteration in our arrangements. I hope you will not have any difficulty in persuading your people to let you go to the theatre, as I expect a treat. Perhaps Maria would like to go? If so, I should have no objections in looking after two. I wish it was Wednesday night, love, at 7.30pm, weather permitting, and then we could meet again. I remain my darling wife, your faithful and loving husband, Fred. On the 4th of November, Fred writes to Janie requesting some sheet music for what appears to be his farewell party. My dear Janie, we shall have a little harmony at Donald's, so would you kindly let the bearer have the following songs? The Midshipmite, Nancy Lee, Blue Alsatian Mountains, Leather Bottle, The Outlaw, and any others you think necessary. I will bring them up on Saturday night, which I wish was tonight. Hoping you are quite well, I remain yours, Fred Shepherd. Jane replied the same day. My darling, I hope you will spend a very enjoyable evening. Wish I was there to play the accompaniments for you. I found all the songs but the leather bottle. I have looked through all the music and cannot find it. I wish it was tomorrow night. I don't know what I shall do without you for two months. From your loving wife, Janie. On the morning of Monday, 7th of November, 1881, Fred left for Middlesbrough on an early train. Rather than a romantic station-side farewell, this being a true story, what actually happened was it looked like Janie stayed at Fred's home the night before. At some point before Fred leaving, they both decided to consummate their engagement. And I have just a hunch that it might have been this last night together that Janie and Fred went that final step and took comfort in intimacy before their separation. The following morning, instead of going to the station, Janie chose to stay behind to look after Fred's mother, Anne. It was Arthur, Fred's brother, who saw him to the station and helped him with his travelling trunk. So Anne and Janie waved Fred off from the doorstep and watched him walking down the hill. Jane stayed with Anne until Arthur came back, so that she could be assured all was well. In a later letter, Jane said that they comforted each other 
I'm imagining them both feeling tearful and Jane trying her best to care for her future mother-in-law. I really feel for Anne here. In the space of a month, she has effectively lost two sons. She'd mourned the death of her eldest and was now watching her youngest leave the nest for a town 100 miles away. I wonder if Arthur chose not to pass on the information, which Janie only found out later, that Fred was so full of anxiety he lost his breakfast before boarding the train. After all, there was much to be anxious about. Fred got on that train not knowing where he'd be laying his head that night. When he arrived at the other end, he'd be expected to put in half a day's work and only after the close of business would he be free to seek out lodgings. Not only that, Fred was leaving his home, his family and Janie. After saying goodbye to Arthur, when the train finally pulled away, Fred later said, I felt as though I were leaving my heart or half myself behind me. listening to my love letter time machine this brings us to the end of season one next time there'll be a question and answer bonus episode and then the time after that we'll begin season two and find out how fred and Janie coped with a long distance relationship in the meantime you can follow me sharing excerpts of fred and Janie's letters on instagram at my love letter time machine or one word or on the blog my darling Janie co.uk and if you'd like to write to me you can at my love letter time machine at gmail.com until next time take care